following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Mini bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! My name is Matt Perez, and my name is Satchel Drakes, and this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Satchel. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Doing all right. Chilling out, you know. How about yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. So, uh, what's like one of your favorite games of the year this year? Uh, Mario Odyssey's pretty up there. Okay, yeah. That was, I, fi- I, fi- I figured as much. I think it's everyone's uh-huh. like go to right now. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited to dive into Star Wars Battlefront too. I don't think it'll supersede it, but mm-hmm. I'm on a good like I'm on a good little high, you know, from just all the Star Warsiness that's going on oh, yeah. right now. Oh yeah. With Odyssey. I guess like I'm trying to think like is that one of your favorite Mario games of all time? Like how did you feel about whoa, it in general? Whoa. I mean, those are fighting words. Like, <laughs> 64, I mean, it's definitely high up there. Uh, 64 is my favorite. Mm-hmm. And Odyssey is up there because it is almost, it is the best spiritual successor we have to it. Gotcha. I mean, yeah. do you think, 64, that came out like 96, right? Like, it's such a memorable game. I remember, like, every little detail of that game. Do you think Odyssey will go down as, like, a memorable game. I know it's like a, a weird question because we don't really know like how we'll feel about like remembering something, but I don't know. Like, how do you feel about that? Um, it's hard comparatively to say that because Mario Odyssey, even though it is objectively more fully realized, you know, more lush and thoughtful and thematic worlds. Like when you start looking at, the the objects that were thrown together to put together Super Mario 64 at surface level, it, it looks like a tech demo, you know what I mean? But as far as memorability, that puts it in a different space where it's not necessarily about it being better in particular categories as much as it was the first Mario 3D platformer and that's incredibly memorable versus Odyssey where we're so familiar with so many 3D titles from Mario and so many like contemporary titles from Mario that... Um, I can see how you can look at it and see little things in it from other spaces, and it might be less memorable than other things, but it is bar none uh, an incredible installment and oh, yeah. high, mu- like much higher than other things that I've played, like 3D Land, etc. And breaking away to say thank you to Amica Insurance, Veridesk, and Rocket Mortgage for their support of our show, Overworld. More about those companies later in the show. So maybe you, don't, you won't hate me as much when I say this, where uh, I'm like a big fan of atmosphere in games of like these environments that like you really invest emotionally in and they just connect with you. Um, I really, there's, there's, yeah, there's definitely moments of odyssey, uh, especially like new dong city where like, it just hits me. and I'm like, I love this. And like, this is something they'll stick with me. I'm totally with you. Like a big thing for me is, um, every year since I was in middle school, Christmas time, 
I play Super Mario 64 and I play the winter level. I play because it's just the Christmiest, it's the mm. Christmasiest thing yeah. that I can remember about my childhood. And the atmosphere was so accurate to all of the sort of fantastical claymation films and I had like Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas on VHS and all these other things. And like it was it was it was a clear draw from like because I mean you think like Christianity isn't really like a kind of de facto religion in Japan per se, but it was like a clear like the sort of overall American perspective take on like Christmas and winterness and holiday nostalgia, it was all sort of lifted and put into that into mm-hmm. Super Mario sixty four. So going back to it all the time, it, it's like a big deal to me, and all of it has to do with the atmosphere that they created. Yeah, and I know for me, like um, another big one from the sixty four era is Banjo Kazooie, and there's a level. Um, that goes throughout the seasons of this one environment. And I just love the fall, like the autumn aspect of it. And you see like how everything's growing and how everything is like starting to get prepared for winter. And it's just luscious. And um, just seeing how that environment changes over the course of time just like really stuck with me. And the, the music slightly changes. There's just something like really magical about that. Um, and like, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but... As much, I think Odyssey is just, God, it's so incredible and has a lot of these moments. But I don't know, for the most part, like, I think a lot of these levels, as, as like, amazing and cool as they are, I'm like, yeah. And, and I, I feel like I can move on and maybe not remember it for a while. And I don't, that's like a strange problem. I don't know if it's a strange problem of me to have with the game where they've done so much good, but, you know, I think I'll, always love something like Super Mario Sunshine more where you know Sunshine had this like tropical island and it reminded me of going down the shore the Jersey Shore um and like going to the beach and it has this like variation on a theme throughout all its levels where you can also see like new levels that you haven't been to out in the out in the distance and there's just something that always stuck with me with Sunshine that I don't know, like, even though I love Odyssey, it's the one thing where it didn't connect with me, and it's like, I don't know if this will be memorable for me. I don't know if this will be as magical for me as, like, something like Sunshine, which is, like, a weird thing, you know? Uh, Sunshine said to me, so I can't relate. I'm sorry. But <laughs> I hear the essence of sort of what you're saying. <laughs> but I but I made the mistake of bringing up Super Mario Sunshine and its camera <laughs> angles. I mean, I guess there was a. I mean, I guess there was an atmosphere to it in, in the sense that everything has to have one. So, mm. yeah, I guess is it. I'm what I'm trying to like. And maybe I don't need to separate it, but maybe what I'm trying to separate is Gotta is keep atmosphere. It yeah, mm, <laughs> from the '90s too. There you go. Keep yeah. it on brand right now. Um, <laughs> like, is that something subjective? Or I mean, everything's subjective. But is that something where like I'm bringing my own? like thoughts into this game and I'm just connecting with sunshine a lot more because of it's more about like jumping in salt water and stuff. Or is there some type of like magical thing there that designers have implemented that like this idea of atmosphere is, is is like something that like can be harnessed and used. That sounds like a villain, but you know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) yeah, no, no, no. I'm totally with you. I think it, it has to be, 
a situation of the tangible and the spiritual conflating together. Because on one end, you sort of have these static, objective, referential, like, segments of the world that you're putting together where, okay, they're making a winter level. They're going to be Christmas trees. There's going to be snowmen. They're going to be, like, bridges and elements covered in, like, snow. Like, there's going to be precipitation. There's going to be all these different things, right? Uh, Penguins, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And all of these things are going to kind of go into it. But somehow the way in which they're assembled requires a kind of, for lack of better words, magic where Mm – it there there's no doubt that like i mean just going off a of winter level since we brought it up like i'm going to feel a certain way about a winter level that somebody who was born and raised in california is not because mm. they do not have like they might not not growing up in the, a sort of wintry context every year they might not have particular moments or stories or things attached to it that make them feel any particular way. They might, but it's going to be different from myself. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I think in that regard, uh, there's something to be said about an intangible side of atmosphere that creates something, recreates something that's familiar, that's known. And then also just the idea of yeah, this is a winter level. It's supposed to look like this, where you wouldn't have a winter level on a beach with shorts and flip flops. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I get. Yeah, I totally see that. It's like I guess like yeah. another interesting like comparison would be um, Ocarina of Time, Zelda Ocarina of Time, and Zelda Majora's Mask, where they use the same assets. Like, I mean, it was like they had to like quickly do another sequel kind of thing, and. They're using um, the same graphics, the same kind of character art, you know, the Postman and Majora's Mask, even though they're a different character. um, They look the same as they would in Ocarina of Time. But for me, like, Majora's Mask um, is my favorite game because, I mean, a lot of different reasons, but, like, it has such a strong, different, weirder atmosphere um, and it's just odd where it's like, no, we've, we've taken these things you're familiar with, we've rearranged them in a different sort of way, and it just like hits you in a totally left field kind of way. And that's interesting to think of like, how are developers doing that? You know, at least that side of the tangible, where definitely there's a spiritual aspect, but then there's the tangible. I would love to know how developers and how these sort of like designers are dealing with handling this, how they view this, the kind of different things that are coming to mind um, that they would need to consider to create a successful atmosphere. So let's do that. We're going to talk to Lee Petty over at Double Fine. He was the art director on Brutal Legend and Broken Age, and also the project lead on Stacking and Headlander. So excited. Let's go for it. But first, a quick break. The support for Overworld comes from Amica Insurance. We're living in the age of the discerning shopper, when savvy consumers increasingly favor brands that value authenticity, ethics, and a great shopping experience. Amica is committed to being a company people trust. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes and find out why 95% of Amica customers with combined auto and home policies stay with them. One more time, that's meetamica.com slash Forbes to find out more about Amica Insurance. Support for the Forbes Overworld podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. 
Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. So yeah, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Lee. really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so um, I went through your Headlander art document, and uh, I thought it was like really fascinating. And I feel like in games, you really need to pay attention um, or keep in mind like making great art, but also like directing a player's attention effectively. Like, can you talk about that balance you have to strike when creating these spaces? Yeah, um, that can be really uh, tricky, and it's definitely one of those things uh, that can always frustrate artists sometimes, and and designers on the other side. If you know, if you sort of have both disciplines uh, that are separate working on your on your project, uh, I find that um, you know, really a, a nice if you sort of want to think about it uh, from let's say a two D illustration standpoint. You know, um, artists are still kind of creating primary focal points. Um, in those 2D illustrations. And it may not always be obvious to the viewer, but, um, you know, usually a good illustration will have no more than, it'll pretty much have one or maybe two, at the most three primary focal points. So I think um, level design um, is about some of those same goals. Um, Of course, it's not a static image, so it can change over time. You know, events can happen that might change that focal point in in the same space. Um, I think with something like Headlander, we had, we were able to use a little bit of, uh, 2D composition tricks that are maybe not normally um, possible in full 3D games, like a third-person or a first-person game, because we basically had a side view and we had some control over that camera distance, so we could use certain framing techniques um, to kind of not only create a satisfying um, foreground, background, and midground, but also to kind of have a little more control about where something will appear on screen. So um, I think that helped us a bit. Yeah. It's interesting, like, I've seen um, talks with, like, Steve Gaynor talking about moving through space and, like, how a level designer affects the flow of the game, and it felt, like, very much like the level designer themselves have so much control over the pacing and the feeling that the the player will have. It almost felt like um, how, like, a film, uh, on a film, like, an editor has, like, a lot of control, but you never think that, like, the editor has as much control as they have. Is that, like... Fair to say, like they have, like the level designer and the art uh, department have, like a lot of control of, like how the player's feeling at all times, how they're moving through a space, and like the overall pacing of an experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly some of the intent. Although it can vary a lot depending on the type of game you're making, um, you know. And I, I think if you probably ask you know, the average artist or level designer, they would always feel like they don't have as much control as probably part of them wants. But I think the magic of, of games is, is in that interactivity is not knowing exactly what the player is going to do and trying to account for that in some ways so that um, I think the best games um, that deal with this really well, um, you know, you might have a primary intent for an area, but maybe 
um, you discover either through playtesting or, or you just have insight that, oh, a player might try this other thing. And all that's not really the point. You want to put something in the game world or system that recognizes that they did that thing. And I think the players always feel highly rewarded when they realize, yeah, I just found this weird rock and I turned the rock over and, hey, there was a little message or something there. And it, it doesn't necessarily affect the primary flow of the, that level or that, that space, but um, it always feels... Uh, I don't know. It always feels like, oh man, they made the world just for me, you know. And <laughs> when you have those moments in games, yeah. Well, just because you, um, I guess, like Headlander is sort of like a Metroidvania game, and like that's very much. I, I feel like in that sense, the levels have like a multitude of uses where you have like maybe a room that's dedicated to the combat, but there's also like some hidden things there. And I think what you mentioned before, where uh, like Super Mario Odyssey is a new game where. Uh, it very much keeps in mind, like, if, like, we're enticing the player to come over here and they discover it, we'll give them a reward for that. Like, is that something you also have to, like, really keep in mind of, like, okay, we created the space for one task, but maybe it has to serve other purposes. That seems really challenging. Yeah, it can be. And, and it's interesting, too, because um, I think, you know, some of those design decisions are... Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Like, for example, um, uh, thinking back when I worked on stacking, you know, one of the goals with stacking's puzzle design was that um, each puzzle had multiple solutions. And the puzzles, um, there were, you know, three to four primary puzzles that you had to complete at least one solution uh, from each of those to move uh, the game forward to go to the next level or whatnot. And, but we tried to make the level design so that you could pretty much encounter those puzzles in any order and do any solutions from any of those puzzles. And um, that was a little tricky to structure, but what was interesting um, is because I didn't want to put any breaks on that. You know, um, I didn't, like the players could just go and find each of those puzzles, only do one solution, and then choose to move to the next level. And they could come back to that level at any point during the game, including the in-game state, and do the rest of them for achievements or just their own satisfaction. But what I found, um, at least there were several comments I remember when the game shipped where people were like, man, this game, you know, it was only, it was only four hours. I could get through this so quickly. And then they'd say, well, how many solutions did you do? And they're like, oh, we only did the first one and we moved on. And, it, it, and I remember when we were developing it, I was thinking, well, you know, if we put some arbitrary coin-based system on here where you could only go to the next world if you had uh, five stars and you get a star for each, you know, each of the things that... Um, those complaints would all go away, but I really philosophically did not want to arbitrarily put in these, uh, you know, gates just to like waste. I try to respect players' time, and I was like, well, that's just going to waste their time. But I do realize that every time, almost every time I make those decisions, at least from a review standpoint, it gets called out negatively. Even though I feel like I still prefer that approach, especially given how many games there are now, and I don't, I just don't want to, um, you know, force people to to have it become like a chore. I want to respect their time. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, but, but that oh. you know that does make the that does make level design a little trickier too because you don't um, you know in Headlanders a similar example where you know we we in a classic Metroidvania style game you know if you're kind of doing it by the book or well I guess there's not you know not per se a book but all of the upgrades that you would get in the game for your character the new abilities would be metered out at specific points in the game and you go through here's a little training phase where you go through it. And then you're able to use that. And, and while that's a great formula and it's meaningful, it, um, you know, it, it makes sure that those abilities are, are meaningfully given and can always be used in the world. Um, 
we did that with some of the fundamental, like the branch-based abilities, but I, I kind of wanted all the rest of the abilities just to be optional for the player. Um, and so that they didn't have to do them. Uh, they didn't have to upgrade, and they could, they could choose which ones they went after based on their interests. And they all made the game easier or harder. Um, well, they didn't make the game harder, but they all made it easier in different ways depending on um, the type of player and, and what their skill sets were. But I did, there was a fair amount of critique from at least the Metroidvania lens that, well, you know, you didn't have to get the upgrades, so therefore they weren't worth anything, you know. Uh, and again, it gets back to that, like, well, we didn't ability gate the last half of the game. Uh, we could have. Like, I could, could have done that. Um, but I just felt, um, you know, that wasn't really uh, what I, it, just, not, just not the approach I generally like to take. Mm-hmm. I think especially for like Metroid games, um, like both like the the like there's there seems to be that like s- very difficult balance between you know th- these games will have some backtracking and you'll want to like hide things kind of in plain view of like oh you might have to come back here but like doing it too much might be frustrating for the player uh, so just that just seems like a weird like I if you did put it like an upgrade upgrade gate there then you might get criticized for that so it's a yeah. it's like a two i think with metro games like a, a two-sided uh sword um i was it is true yeah. yeah i was really interested in um going off in a, like a little different direction um like i guess like atmosphere in games mm-hmm. it's like probably one of the most important things for me i know from watching like the double fine documentary tim schaefer mentioned how much he appreciates good atmosphere because it kind of like haunts you um can you like speak on that like the, the like how what what even do, do you consider that when designing a level or using art and like is it something that you can put a fo- finger on of like how you create good atmosphere you know mm, yeah i actually care a whole lot about that as well I, I think tim and i have that in common um for me in terms of um designing games and and doing art for games i i I feel like the thing that I enjoy the most, um, both as a creator and as a player, is um, just the fact that you could have this absurd world that somehow, on some level, feels believable or cogent or real. And, um, you know, like in Brutal Legend, I spent a lot of my time just focusing on creating lots of stuff in the open world, um, some of which had no gameplay impact at all, just to kind of create, like, yeah, yeah, here's this crazy world built from, like, the dead body of a chrome god that somehow feels like it has some self-consistency <laughs> and atmosphere you know and i tried to do that in stacking and headlander as well and um there's a there's a, a number of things um a number of ways to approach that but i think um i mean it, i think it's a lot about layering um so you know you of course want the game play to be clear and and the the player visual language and affordances to be clear so they know kind of like oh that's a door that explodes or not explodes or this is a thing i can go into or not but there's a lot you can do ambiently you know one of my favorite things to do is just have a lot of um animations with npcs even if they don't specifically have mechanic mechanical gameplay impact just to sort of have them interacting by themselves so you sort of feel like when i leave the room these uh, these characters, even though I understand that there's a, they're a bit of an artifice, that these characters could kind of just still keep playing their own dialogue trees or talking, and you almost feel like interrupting you're interrupting a conversation when you talk to them. Um, and I think uh, there's a lot of uh, stuff with just um, voice, you know, with Headlander in particular, um, since we had it voice um, and the main character wasn't talking, so we didn't have the main character interrupting. We did we did a lot of little things with the PA system. And the ship's computer, or the, the you know the world's computer, uh, talking, and we change that a lot based on game state and subtle ways. So if you 
if you kind of ran back through the levels, maybe because you're actually interested in finding all the secrets, if you're paying attention, all those conversations, those people all change. In fact, even if you get to the in-game state, you know, we have unique dialogue uh, written for every character in that game and all the levels of the game. Um, and there's like just that's just there as background. And I realize a lot of players don't even see that or care about it. But I do think that if you catch a little bit of it, you just have the sense that the world is um, existing without you. Um, and that's more of a, you know, I, and we, we did that in stacking a bit, although a little differently because it wasn't voiced. Um, and I think the other part of that is um, not so much detail in art, but um, I, I mean, I, Headlander is not what I would describe as a detailed visual look, but I, I think it's pretty rich. Uh, and some of that is is in um, finding things that aren't really obvious um, that people might see or connecting details. So, like, just as a, a random example, in Headlander, we have um, these little vacuum cleaner type things that go around, the electrosucks, as we call them, that go around and, and clean the station. And, you know, they, they have a little chatter, and you can talk to them, and they're usually, uh, you know, very excited about cleaning, and it's their mission. They're kind of military-like. But if um, later on in the game when you, um, you can fly into these little small service ways that they operate. And um, sometimes they're there for secrets in the sort of Metroidvania way, like you get upgrade points for your thrust speed and whatnot. But you, you might notice there's little posters around. And the, they start having like little, an- they have little propaganda posters that are up on the walls that start talking about like the anti-door league um, and, uh, and the, the, the workers' rights and those things. And then there's this other character, which is the door that talks. And, the, and every once in a while you might catch disgruntled dialogue between the, the electro sucks and the doors. And indeed, if you go back to the end of the game and find those little service ways and talk to those electro sucks, um, they are, uh, they are talking about how they're ready to start the overthrowing the doors and everything. So there's just like, you know, I hope the, the, the idea is that hopefully the players maybe catch little bits of that stream. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's with both visuals and dialogue in this case. And, um, you know, they make those connections. I think whenever you, you find something that mentions something else that's separated by time or space in a game, I'm sorry about that. No problem. <laughs> no worries. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, if, you, if you catch anything that's separated by time or space in a video game, um, I think it makes it feel more believable. It feels like it hasn't been metered out. And you're like, oh, this thing I found referred to something I saw two hours ago over there. And even yeah. if it's just a mention, you know, <laughs> I love that stuff. So I, mean, I think that's part real. of the atmosphere, you know, as well. Yeah, I, dude, I have to. I have to imagine that there's sort of like a spectrum of uh, of inspiration for something like atmosphere. But I'm curious to know: is there any kind of like intentional research that goes into establishing like an atmosphere? Is it unintentional, nostalgic? Um, I kind of. I, well, this is kind of like a two part question. Put a pin in that. Like alongside that, I'm curious to know. The term atmosphere is a bit of like a formless or intangible word in a sense that it captures this formless essence that's there to elicit a reaction, right? Um, even though sometimes like it can materialize in like environments and things like that. I'm curious to know, once you do have something you're going for, um, how how have you learned over time to communicate that atmosphere you're going for with your team? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is... Um well, like any sort of um, team-based creative project, you know, it, it's not one person directing everyone. It's you know, you're guiding it as a project lead a, a, and whatnot. But I, you know, everyone contributes to it. So it's part of it's about trying to communicate the the big picture or the high-level ideas, and then as new things come online that are exciting that seem to fit together in your mind, to try and embrace those and, and incorporate those. Um, 
in other places. Uh, so as an example in Hitlander, the citizens, you know, were always supposed to be these kind of passive characters um, that um, you maybe were a bit sympathetic with, but you also, as a tool, you had to be able to like take over their bodies and use them. And so when you're in a combat body, like a shepherd, which is our sort of military force in the game, and you'd press um, the melee button, you'd attack. So when you did that to a citizen, I, I wanted something there. So one of the animators just did a dance animation. And it was really funny. Like, you'd hit the melee button and you'd start dancing. And the whole idea is that this was just, like, pointless hedonism in this game. So then we were like, well, we really like that. And we started putting dances on everything that didn't have melee, if you press that button. So there were all these, like, little hidden dances. And then the composer composed custom pieces of music for each of those dances. And then we put achievements on those dances. And so, um, you know, just from an atmosphere standpoint, when you're in this kind of largely big citizen area and there are uh, parts of the game, like the beginning of the pleasure port, there were no... Uh, enemies are around so there's a lot of dancing and playing this kind of like funky music and that, that helped create an atmosphere that in some ways was participatory by the player um but uh you know in general the way i approach atmosphere one i do two big tools um i mean uh one is that music i always want music and audio in the game ambiance and music in the game when i'm working on a prototype music goes in first people often only involve composers and music guys at the end. And music is so much more effective about com communicating emotion than visuals or gameplay. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think ultimately do them all, but it's such a great thing to get something there. I hate silence. And so, I mean, unless that's what you're going for. And, and what happens is I think we overcompensate in other ways. We get very heavy handed with selling atmosphere if it's silent. So um, I work with composers and the sound guys from the very start of the game. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that, um, uh, another well-known but but um, and powerful tool is lighting, um, and lighting sometimes in games can get reduced to oh we got to make sure the player doesn't get lost. Let's just light the primary player path, and um, that's the function of lighting. And it's like well that can be a function of lighting, but lighting and color design are another a big tool uh, in that regard. And I find that um, I light really early, so the sort of typical workflow for most designers and artists is that, you know, the, there'll be a paper map and maybe a, a block mesh or a white box or a block out, different names for the same thing. And then there'll be, you know, drawovers and art development, and, and it goes for a long time before you see lighting. So what I do is, as soon as we have a block mesh, I want music in there, and I light it. I light the block mesh. Um, and I actually find that that's not only useful from helping establish an atmosphere early on that people keep in mind when, when uh, continuing to refine the gameplay in the area, but it also helps design because um, a full bright level, uh, level without any lighting, uh, it's very, very difficult as a human to judge a sense of scale, especially if there's no real art at that point. And a lot of times the level will be developed and it'll have a completely wrong sense of scale um, for, you know, maybe the, the atmosphere or environment that you're going for. And if you light things early on, um, you understand potential problems with player path, um, you know, kind of what the atmosphere is, uh, and it doesn't be final lighting. Um, so that's, I guess those are two techniques I always use is light the block mesh and get music in early. And both of those will, um, you know, people have different reactions to them, but it is an indirect way of always communicating to the team and people who are uh, working on the game uh, what the kind of broad strokes of that area is, oh, yeah. uh, atmosphere-wise. Yeah, I think what you hit on with, like, music, definitely, like, if I, like, list my favorite games, like Majora's Mask and Final Fantasy X and Chrono Cross, like, they'll all have, like, atmospheres that I really connect with, but they also have, like, amazing soundtracks that I also connect with. Uh, so I think that, like, definitely resonates with me. Um, 
Also with those games, I don't know if my maybe my theory is off. You could tell me. Um, but I think like even with like Psychonauts, which I think has an extremely strong atmosphere and I like really connect with it emotionally, is like there's almost this like familiarity with it where like Psychonauts is very fantastical, so is Chrono Cross or something, but um there's something that I can like identify like there's summer camp and I can identify with that and like with Final Fantasy X, like so much of it has to do with like the ocean and I'm like used to going I'm from Jersey, so I go down the shore to the Jersey Shore, like an overcast day on the beach, and there's like there's that almost where I connect with that emotionally, but then you add in these like crazy absurdist kind of really imaginative worlds. There's just I don't know, that's maybe how I connect with it. Does that like make sense to you or is or am I totally off base? No, I mean I, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, you know, people have a connection to it. it it's hard to um it's easy to unfortunately get kind of abstract with things, you know, and maybe they don't resonate as much with people. And, and, um, I mean, part of it's pacing too. I think sometimes you got to leave these down, down times for it. You know, like I think that was kind of a, one of the faults of Headlander for me was that we didn't leave enough negative space in the experience. And so, you know, there's a lot of combat, a lot of crazy lasers, but then there wasn't as much, um, downtime. You're always kind of pushing forward to the next room where and part of that was level design part of that was there was a lot of lot of choices that led to that and i think if you don't have that downtime you know you spin in those space then it's harder to um make those connections you know and i, I think some a lot of other games have that downtime and i think that um is very meaningful you know even if it's just travel time mm-hmm. you know uh, hopefully not boring travel time but like travel time driving in your car in brutal legend across this heavy metal world kind of like gave you moments like, oh, it's just cool listening to metal on the radio driving by a giant fucking sword, right? Like you, you start to have these weird associations. And um, if it was just like uh, combat encounter to combat encounter or, you know, whatever the, the gameplay is, um, you lose that. And I, I find that I lose that a lot with um, other games too where they're just constantly popping up things. That, like they're really, really worried about people ever getting lost because uh, when you're gameplay testing it, that's like the highest, you almost always the highest frustration point um, which maybe isn't true for actual people when you buy the game, but it certainly is in a gameplay test session. And you're like, oh, we can't, we don't want to get lost. And so you do as much as you can with the, the art and design of the game, but inevitably it, it comes down to like flashing text or blinky lights or arrows always telling you. And so it's almost like the game is discouraging you from breathing in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's important to find at least moments for that if, if it doesn't necessarily, it, you know, some games are fast paced and it doesn't make sense, but. Um, it's nice to find those moments. Yeah. I guess it's like, it's kind of going along. Well, it's what's popping in my mind going along with, um, how the citizens and headlander work where it's like, you have an expectation, but then it kind of skews it all of a sudden. And that's like, it like surprises you. And that like, is part of maybe like in, imbuing, uh, imbuing like something like a feeling into a player. And I guess like with, um, I guess level design, is it a matter of like, I know, like, in Dark Souls, um, one of, like, I, everyone points to, like, this crazy moment where you're going through this, like, really claustrophobic swamp that's really difficult to go through, and it's very dark, and then you're going through very tight corridors through a tree, and then all of a sudden you get to, like, this giant expansive lake. I forget what it's called, but, like, everyone points to it as, like, this amazing moment where there's, like, even, there's not even anything really to do down there, but because, like, you've gone through all this, like very tight corridors and everything and all of a sudden you're like in this amazing world where you get like i get vertigo when i walked out from it from before where it's like this gigantic lake with these 
humongous trees and it just like struck me um as like a totally different like we're moving from this totally opposite space like i it, does that sound just about right where it's like you throw something totally new maybe opposite and then it, like it'll hit you in a different way yeah for sure uh i mean things things it wouldn't feel open if you hadn't been in a closed space right beforehand it wouldn't feel as open you know things Things, if everything is big, nothing feels big, right? You have to have smaller elements for these bigger elements to have impact. And um, I think variations of that approach you see in quite a few games. Um, this sort of almost some games, some games almost you know they kind of borrow it from film in terms of like the big establishing shot design. You know, um, it's a little different when you're talking about Dark Souls because I don't I don't feel like they necessarily like uh, do a cinematic fly through like they might in say Destiny Two when you come over a ridge or whatnot. But similar similar techniques. Um, I think there's another layer of that which is um, thinking about the actual structure of the level design itself, not just sort of a moment there. And it's hard. Uh, I have maybe say I have an example when in stacking. So in stacking, the first the first time you leave the train station early in the game, the first full level you get to is this cruise ship. And at that point, like you know, the stakes are pretty still pretty low in the game, and so. Um, uh, in, in terms of the story, I mean, you're, you're trying to find your, you know, enslaved siblings, so I guess it's not too low stakes, but the overall vibe is very uh, casual at that point, and so the level design of that that ship is a three-level ship, but it was all open, uh, and you could go anywhere, and there was no gates on it, and you and there were a lot of little rooms to find, and um, the colors were kept, um, you know, gold and white, and um, it was very, and it was all open sky, so it had this very open feeling to it, and then the second level of the game we went to this double-decker Zeppelin. And um, at that point, um, it started getting, uh, from a story arc, started getting a little more serious. And so you still had, you could still do the puzzles in any order you wanted, but there was there were a few constriction points in the level when you went from, like, one blimp to the other. Um, and the, the uh, colors uh, were more military uniform-themed. They were, uh, like, a dark blue and then a white and a red. And, the, um, uh, and then by the third level which was on the, the triple-decker tank engine, it was the most constricted level, and it was the most um, tense moment, uh, story-wise. So you had these, you know, train cars that you had to go for, they're in a linear line, because it was a train, so you had to go in them in a certain order, and of course you weren't forced to do the puzzle, but you had to kind of like go through the space itself um, in a certain order, and the, you know, the colors were black and red, and it was at night, and you almost never saw sky. And so, um, you know, just the nature of how you put not only what the level is, but the, the players flow through that level can also communicate that atmosphere. It supports the story or, or can fight it, you know. Um, and so that's something I think uh, that level designers think a lot about as well. Also, like, I guess uh, Headliner would be a good example, but, like, how do you, where you establish a certain style or theme, um, but then you also want to, you know, vary the levels and whatnot like what what's that type of balance is that like a good frustration or a good challenge where we have this overarching theme but like we need to like innovate on it like what's that as a uh, as an art director like yeah that that's um that's tricky you know and i think a lot of times people think of art direction um even even art directors <laughs> as um consistency you know they wanted becoming these sort of um fidelity and consistency nazis and i kind of I kind of recognize there's some important there, but what I always say is that we strive for unity, not uniformity, and that mm-hmm. dissonance is good in art direction. Like I, the stuff I remember most from movies and games and, and to some extent literature is the things that were slightly wrong. Like like they don't feel wrong enough to break the universe or the look, but you're like that was a really strange choice. And then later on, you know, ten years later, I'm still thinking about that weird thing they put in there, and so it's hard to know exactly. 
when when something is too dissonant or just a little dissonant. Um, but I think um, there's value in thinking that way as well. And so, in the case of Headlander, you know, we we had certain things like, well, we we are in a ship, and then you get to this sort of like pleasure area, and then it starts getting more into combat. Um, but you know, I wanted a I wanted like a at one point I wanted like a big thematic break. So I am I designed this whole uh, chess area, which is probably one of my favorite areas I designed. And it was like not controlled by the central antagonist. It was controlled by this other sort of mini boss character, I guess you could call her. Uh, it was this uh, you know crazy chess program, the queen. And um, we switched out like all the character models in the area, and we sort of changed the rules a bit. Like you, you know, previously to the earlier part of the game, you you would when you inhabit a body, uh, it's always thought of as temporary, right? Because you, you they can't jump, so sometimes you got to fly your head to get to a different level, and they tend to blow up, and they don't heal them that much, and it doesn't really damage you. You can use them as tools, but when you go to the the chess area, you, know, you have to download information into the body, and then you have to like escort it across a crazy battlefield to upload it on the other side. So you have to care about keeping those bodies intact. Um, and then, the, like I said, they all look different, and um, there's weird white and black rules when it comes to the witch lasers hurt you, and previously it's all based on the color spectrum. So um, that was, you know, a, a, it's not, wasn't, you know, per se consistent, uh, you know, just like the most consistent choices, but I felt like it was a nice breather and refresher and still play with some of those themes and ideas that there was like, it was still a kind of like crazy, out of control computer and I had a whole crazy backstory that we kind of didn't even reveal to the player about what where that chess computer came from, you know, which is based on IBM's big blue uh, uh, chess computer that beat uh, the chess champion back in the 70s, I think it was, and then later found out that they were cheating. Uh, so, you know, it was like this idea of this, like, insecure, crazy chess computer uh, running this whole whole thing for the um, the main antagonist. So anyways, uh, but yeah, that, that you know, that was... Um, I felt like that was enough dissonance from what you're doing, but still kind of worked with the vibe of the overall game. And for some reason for me, like chess was kind of a big thing in the seventies, at least it felt like it was me. I don't know if it actually was, but culturally like there'd be chess on television. Um, and, um, the, the, the visual and graphic industrial design of like early computer chess things had that great, like awkward beige, yellow plastic and nothing was quite. Black. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Chess. The compacts. <laughs> And so somehow that just felt like it belonged to me and it was felt ridiculous enough. Like why would there be, you know, why would there be a crazy chess computer that is putting on a gladiatorial event? Uh, and it's like, it, it was also kind of connected to that like pointless hedonism, like hedonism for hedonism's sake. It's like a, you know, um, the citizens were like, it was never said, but if you actually talk to the, the citizens were the pawns in that game and they had no abilities whatsoever and if you talk to them, they were always nervous about being destroyed and that they, you know, their lot was up. They were forced into, into pawn duty. And you hear um, there's various rooms around the chess arena where you hear the, the main antagonist talking about pawns avoiding chess duty will be rounded up. And, you know, there's all, all, all sorts of stuff surrounding it. So you just sort of get the feeling like it's, well, it's pointless hedonism. These guys, it kind of reinforces those central themes, even though it's like on the surface, very um, different from the, um, the parts before and after uh, that in the game. That's pretty cool. So like if if you could, like what what kind of word or words would you use to describe that that uh priority that supersedes this sort of brand guidelines means of like art directing consistent things? Um I think at Double Fine we always refer to things like games that have personality. And I think part of that is games that felt like they were made by human beings. Uh, and and part of that means 
for me, like slightly unique or unusual choices just across the board, whether that's in visual design or game design or storytelling. Um, I always sometimes say like has a little bit of a handmade feeling, like maybe it's not as polished visually, or maybe the gameplay isn't as refined. The controls aren't, aren't as tight, but it still feels like it was made by a set of human beings, maybe a specific company. And I mean, those are qualities that I find very rewarding. Um, and so that's, I guess that's how I tend to think of it, but I don't know that I have a buzzword for it. <laughs> um, no, you know, maybe cool. just cool. always thinking about that handmade or, or, um, you know, I don't know. One of the, yeah. one of the buzzwords we used are one of the, not buzzwords, but one of the central themes in Headlander was like, imagine a world that never had invented digital technology that somehow underneath all this, it was all analog still. And so even though we didn't, you know, we kind of, we kind of spoke to that roundabout. It was never, I mean, it's a ridiculous concept. It wouldn't really work. Right. But it's just that, um, there are a few places where when you fly your head through these old things, there are like giant vacuum tubes and stuff that are destroyed and all these shapes inspired by analog computer components. So that's, it's pretty subtle, but, um, it also is just that, like, um, I guess that's what I say underneath all these video games, somehow it's analog and that's the people making it. Right. So, uh, something yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, uh, like David Lynch where, I mean, he's going to make some weird choices, but there is like, he like leans on, you know, fifties Americana and it creates this like when he does like the really goes out there for something disturbing, it feels even more disturbing because there's like uncanny feeling of, uh, you are familiar with like how fifties Americana is supposed to be like fun and back to the future. And he's going to twist it just so slightly where it has this entirely different connotation to it, and that's what in you describing that reminds me of a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. David Lynch is really good at that. I mean, I mean, probably the. I don't know. I would say like maybe Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart are probably some of, the, of his movies that speak to that most for me. You know, maybe a little bit Mulholland Drive, but yeah, it's got that like there's this like layer of fifties Americana or almost it could be later too, like to suburbia almost. You know, and then like, well, what's what's underneath that surface is this incomprehensible, surreal set of characters and situations, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. Well, uh, I don't know. Do you have any more questions, Satchel? No, this has been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. This has been awesome. Yeah. My pleasure. Guys. Up next, Eric Kane and Paul Tassi make bold predictions about the video game industry in 2018. But first a quick break. It's the new year and lots of us are at least thinking about ways in which we can be happier and healthier. Maybe we'll take in some yoga, cook up better dinners, or perhaps try a standing desk. Like Veradesk. Veradesk turns your desk into a standing desk, so you're more active than sitting all day. Standing more and sitting less can lead to more energy, less back pain, and more productivity. Check out Veradesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping both ways. See it for yourself at veradesk.com. That's V-A-R-I-desk.com. Podcast One has new shows on our new app. Check out all the cool features to help you explore our exciting new programming, like America's Lakers podcast with Jay Moore, Sessions with Randy Jackson, So Random with Corinne Olympios, Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast, Not Just Sports with Susie Schuster and Rich Eisen, and Sound of Success, the Dick Enberg podcast, as well as your old favorites like The Lady Gang, Steve Austin, Shaquille O'Neal, and Adam Carolla. Get the new Podcast One app in the App Store, Google Play, or PodcastOne.com. 
springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Everybody loves honey glazed carrots, a great side dish for your springtime celebration, and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stalking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! All right, uh, I'm Eric Kane. And I'm Paul Tassi. We're back this week uh, after taking a bit of a break to talk about uh, the sort of big video game predictions of 2018. I'm going to kick off the new year with some thoughts about what we'll see, what what maybe we'll see different from 2017, kind of some of the big games, uh, what we think might get delayed, uh, what, you know. So, so I'll, I'll kick things off. Um, I think that... Rockstar's Red Dead Redemption 2 will get delayed at least one more time, pushed back towards the end of the year. Yeah, I could see that. Um, if they've only done one delay so far, it seems kind of logical they'll do a second. With such a huge game, I mean, they'd almost kind of... I, they do kind of tend to release games in the spring, I feel, but if they wanted to slot it in fall, it would kind of just be a wrecking ball there. <laughs> if they wanted to, like, just really buck the trends, they'd release it in, like... July. I would love that. Not not so nearly good. enough games are released in like the dead of summer, which is weird because you know anyone under like twenty one has school off to some extent. <laughs> so, but there's never anything. Yeah. Well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of the same. You know, it's weird because it, there's always the summer blockbusters in the movie business. You know, right? These big sort of dumb big movies that that can you know that do well in the summer, and I feel like that's there's a real space for that in video games. So maybe maybe they'll delay it till July. That would be that would be amazing. Yeah, I would love for that because I'm sure nothing else would even. I mean, everyone's going to flee Red Dead regardless. But at, at that sure. point, it would be great because it would be just kind of a desert of all content. So <laughs> yeah, they'd really they'd be able to. You know, that's kind of what happened with Pokemon Go. Is yeah. it released in July? And that was perfect because it was the summer for a game where you could go outside with it. But also, I think it's because. There was nothing else going on that month. So. Yeah, that definitely helped. Yeah, I mean, granted, that kind of expanded past your typical gaming crowd, right. but very much so. <laughs> that, I, think I think that definitely help. helped it for sure. Yeah. I of course took that month off basically and missed on missed out on all of that. So. Yep, I uh, don't regret sticking around for that. I'll say that. <laughs> I remember. I remember that year. I was like, well, let's plan our vacation in July because nothing ever happens in July. <laughs> so I, I got that prediction wrong. Well, and I was in, I was at the cabin in the woods with no cell service, so it was like I just completely missed the whole thing. The Pokemon there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, they, well, they probably were, but you know, yeah, you couldn't find them. Um, also, <laughs> let's see. I'm going to say that uh, the new Call of Duty from Treyarch will be a Black Ops game set in modern times. Yeah, or I can see that also. Um, yeah. I, I think I don't think they're ready to give up the Black Ops name. Is like kind of their their last bastion of, of the old guard of like call of duty hits because those were just such big sellers that they're, they're going to ride that name and people like black ops three, I think to a certain extent. So it's not like fans are really soured on that sub series yet. And it's Treyarch. It just, it seems kind of logical. And yeah, I agree that they'll probably keep ditching the jet packy ultra tech stuff, uh, based on how world war two did. So I think that's a good bet. I hope they would make my zombies game, but I don't think they're going to. <laughs> No, you know, like, I, I like your zombies game idea because that sounds cool. It's like Walking Dead meets Call of Duty. That could be a really cool campaign. 
Um, they could have a lot of fun with it. I, you know, and I, I've said similar things like a steampunk Call of Duty would be fun, but I just don't see them going that route. Uh, yeah, certainly not this year. May, maybe in the future, like if they're feeling brave. But I, I definitely think you're right about Black Ops being kind of the thing this year. All right, you got any? You got any uh, big? Yeah, predictions? yeah, I got a big bold prediction that uh, Crackdown Three is going to be awful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. Maybe that's overly pessimistic, but man, that of of like all the troubled productions and games, that just that has looked rough from start to finish, and it's been delayed. I bet it might be delayed again. I think it's supposed to be out this spring, but I'm I wouldn't even rule out that they might just scrap it, which sounds crazy. But no, it doesn't sound crazy. Not man, with the way they, we've they seen. Have not shown anything that looks good. <laughs> yeah, well, and Microsoft has shown a real willingness to acts projects that are not going the way they need to go. I mean, we saw Scalebound get uh, canceled and various other... I mean, really, what is... Co- there's really not much coming to Xbox. Uh, see, like, Sea of Thieves, I guess, is, is the big game. I mean, I, I will predict that that will probably be pretty good, but I, I don't think that's going to be some, like, blockbuster mega hit for Xbox. Like, that's, like, the must-have thing. I, I'm sure it'll be pretty good like from what i've seen it, it looks kind of charming and I, I think it'll find an, an audience but that it's not going to be kind of the, the the equivalent of whatever of sony's stuff that just is this huge huge draw and i mean yeah may, maybe they're planning other stuff for for fall like bigger stuff but it doesn't seem like it and i i don't think they've been really laying the groundwork for that so it's weird isn't it it is like and especially yeah. with the xbox one x Sea of Thieves seems like the furthest possible thing from like the showcase game for the Xbox One X. I mean, <laughs> graphically, it's just it's cutesy, you know, but it's not stunning looking. Well, I also, I also thought that about Crackdown because Crackdown was originally going to be an Xbox One X launch game. Like literally, it was supposed to come out the day of, and like that game with its like cell shading and it wasn't even really good cell shading from what I saw. Like I, I didn't understand why that was being chosen to show it off like it would have made more sense to like push forza back like two months and have that be like kind of bundled with it or something um but or like the new gears that would have been a good time for new gears even though we're kind of out of cycle because that's always kind of a visually amazing uh game but instead it was like oh look at all these three-year-old games that have 4k updates now like cool (laughs) it's so strange because the xbox one x is a really great machine from you know my what what i've played on it so far anyways uh, but there's just Microsoft has just nothing. It's just it's only third party at this point, and that's such a contrast to Nintendo and Sony, and especially Sony because you know Sony has the benefit of having the cross-platform stuff, and you know just in 2018, quite a few pretty big you know uh, exclusives like God of War, Days Gone, Spider Man. Uh, oh yeah, uh, oh, there's, there's just. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think that's... There's, here's another prediction. Last of Us 2 <laughs> does not come out in 2018. That's a good one. I predict... I wrote about this yesterday, but I predict God of War is going to be delayed out of, quote-unquote, early 2018, which makes no sense to me. <laughs> uh, I saw that in an ad. I'm like, seriously? And then I looked it up, and I'm like, wow, they actually have been saying it's going to come out in early 2018, which we see, I think, 15 total minutes of footage from that game to date, which... I mean, that seems is exactly as far along as The Last of Us, which is, you know, not saying much. But I mean, just based on what we've seen of it. So I will also predict a delay there. 
Um, hmm. And I'll, just to jump on, piggyback on the God of War prediction, I think it's not going to be very good. Well, really? I think there's going to be good things about it. Like, I think that combat's probably going to be good, and it's just going to be graphically. But I think that that little kid is going to ruin it. <laughs> just be, a, be an annoying just kid. Being annoying, just talking the whole time. I think he's going to just ruin it. So that's my prediction. The kid ruins God of War for all of us. It's very specific. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, like you said, we've seen 15 minutes of footage, and a big chunk of that was the kid hollering it at, uh, at uh, whatever. What's, Kratos. The, what's his Kratos all, the whole time, and it was uh, it was very obnoxious. So I, I just don't know if I can deal with that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I, I have faith because I have yet to play like a truly terrible God of War game, but it is a big switch for them. It's big format changing. I don't even really know what the format of the game is. If it's open world or like kind of linear mixed with open world or any of that. Uh, so I am. Well, you know, curious. It looks like it it's goes. kind of like it's 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 doing what so many of Sony's games do. Like it's become kind of the fantasy. Uh, mythological Last of Us, you know, similar um, camera, uh, very narrative driven. You know, it's it's really changed to. Now, that's kind of what we see with a lot of Sony games now. Mm-hmm. You know, Uncharted, Days Gone. Uh, so many of these games have kind of a similar like. It, they just they all kind of have a, a, a shared format, so it's kind of interesting to see God of War go that way and lose the fixed camera and lose. Lose kind of what made it God of War, yeah, which I don't is, mind, um, but it it's could, odd. It could work. It is just I wouldn't have imagined that it would kind of slide into like Uncharted, you know, Last of Us territory. But I guess you know, stick with what works to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, do you think there will be a new Assassin's Creed game? No, definitely not. Think that they're they're gonna. Do you think they'll move to like a year on year off model? Yeah, I think so. If if not even more, honestly, I think yeah. they really like how Assassin's Creed Origins went, um, and so they're, they're certainly not this year. M- maybe then the year after, and maybe that's a good schedule for them is year on year off. Um, speaking of Ubisoft, I think Far Cry Five is going to be underwhelming and yep. simultaneously controversial for a bunch of stupid reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, yes, it's already been controversial for a bunch of stupid reasons. The, I, the whole lead up <laughs> to this game is just bizarre to me. Where it seems like a very appropriate game for the political climate, but then it doesn't want to actually like get into the issues, and then it wants to marry like really serious kind of brutality with like I was reading there's some mission about something to do with it, cow testicles or something. Like I don't know, like just a tone that just veers kind of wildly all over the place. And I'm wondering how that will work as, like, a coherent game. But I don't know. I get Far Cry is, like, always kind of wacky to some extent. But I wouldn't really describe those games as, like, tonally inconsistent. But I don't know. Just from what I've seen for Far Cry 5, it looks weird in a not good way. (laughs) I can't tell, you know, because... Well, okay, so I'm sure it's going to be a lot like 3 and 4, like, structurally... It, it looks very similar, and and I really liked three and four, but definitely four felt like kind of just a reskin of three. Um, but they are always kind of like zany and serious, like merged in a weird way. I feel uh, like they're mostly but, zany. I, I mean, I don't know. I can't remember like really like serious, super dramatic moments from Far Cry, but maybe I'm well. I think that misremembering. Like, I mean. Some of the characters can be pretty serious. Like in four, the the sort of 
revolution leaders that you dealt with were pretty grim. Yeah. I don't know, overly serious themselves. Whereas the villain was, you know, quite quite the opposite. Um, I, li- I liked that game. I, you know, I think that Far Cry Five is going to be fun in the way that the last two were fun, but just not really mind blowing. It's not going to do anything new. Well, I wanted it to be because... the Assassin's Creed origins of Far Cry, and I just right. I don't see that happening. So, yeah, I mean, maybe, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I have a prediction that this might be the first year that we finally start to see some kind of overall reversing course of the whole loot box thing, at least to some extent. Like, I think, I think the Battlefield or uh, Battlefront 2 stuff kind of freaked everybody out to a certain extent, like, in the industry. Because I was probably going to write about this soon, but, like, there's still no word on, like, if microtransactions are ever coming back (laughs) to Battlefront, which is weird. And it was such a core part of the monetization model for that, because that game doesn't even have DLC coming, or or paid DLC. And to have your game be that trash to the point where you had to just scrap essentially all future monetization for it that's kind of a warning shot like we've never seen and i'm already starting to see rumblings of this with destiny where the community is so mad about eververse and the loot box is there and like even if it's it's not as harmful as you know um battlefront but it you know an expansion came out and then there was as many items in the paid stores there were in the free or in in the paid DLC content. And then a week later they did another event, which is also based on <laughs> putting more stuff in loot boxes. And everyone was like, all right, screw this. Like something's got to give. So if destiny, I don't know what Destiny's going to do. I, I doubt they do something as drastic as just deleting the whole thing. But my prediction is that overall we will start to see a little bit of a slide backwards. Like not that loot boxes are going to be eliminated, but the, the kind of bounds they've been pushing now, I, I think we might we might have reached a limit, at least in terms of this kind of monetization. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, one way or the other, there's going to probably be a lot more controversy. There's going to be different games that try different things. And I, I, do, I do agree that I think this, this whole Battlefront thing sent ripples through the whole industry. Uh, it's interesting, though, because you, you have games like then Call of Duty World War II which has probably the most sophisticated loot box system of any Call of Duty game. Uh, you know, just really, like, taking that to the next level also, you know, with the opening loot boxes in front of other players and uh, making making a big show out of it. Uh, I, th- I, think, I think on the one hand we're going to see that these companies refine and continue to push loot boxes and we're going to see the community continue to push back and I just don't know where it will all end up. I think definitely we're not going to see much more of the sort of pay to win stuff in, in big AAA games because it's just too risky. That was just so blatantly uh, stupid. I, I, I don't even know how that got out of like committee. Like I, it just I know, it doesn't right? make sense to me. Well, it's um, people, it's, it's suits making calls without talking to, you know, the actual people making the game. I would love to be on the, just, the fly on the wall on that. Oh, yeah. Maybe we'll get a... Yeah. Jason Schreier article about what happened with <laughs> Battlefront 2 yeah, loot probably, boxes because yeah. I, I don't know how else we'll no, know. But. Probably, actually. <laughs> uh, he's good at that. Um, you know what else was a, a, you know, and it wasn't just Battlefront, it wasn't just these online games, but also Middle Earth Shadow of War, um, I think, earned a lot of hate for their 
the way that they designed their game around loot boxes. Yeah, and that and wasn't like that the didn't game like break the game. Boxes. It was just stupid. You know, <laughs> it just it made it worse. Break the game. I mean, think about it. Like, did you finish the game? No, it was, but no, I would. I wouldn't blame that entirely on loot boxes. <laughs> but but you know the reason they made it so big and so they and so hard to finish is because. If you just bought loot boxes with orcs, you could you could progress through it faster. So they really, I really think they did design it in a way to make it a little more tedious than the first game, unless you paid up. Well, that's yeah, that that's like the big question it. with loot boxes is like even if it's not doing this exact thing, it's like what else was redesigned to accompany it? Like I, I think I said when Shadow and War came out, I'm like, all right, well, literally the only thing to buy with this in-game currency are these kind of, like, quote-unquote free loot boxes. I'm like, what if they had an entire economy that was not based on loot boxes that was just in the game? Like, that would have been a facet of the game that would be a lot more interesting than what we see. Yeah. And that just didn't exist because loot boxes. So, loot boxes. yeah, no, I, I, I do think you're right. But, I, I think that, that's, that that is also going to be a lesson learned. Um, yeah. Just, and, just that they, they, they can't get away with these kind of, like, over-the-top... They, they're going to have to walk some stuff back. Yeah, I, I do think this is a somewhat risky prediction because just the history of the industry has taught us that just when you think, oh, they can't possibly <laughs> get any worse. Like, it's going to get worse in some way. I, I don't know if there's some new form of monetization we just are not thinking of yet. Like, I don't know no, if there's more. <laughs> wait timers or whatever are going to be oh, put in console games, which sounds nuts, but, I mean, who knows? <laughs> You no, know, what I what I think is we're not going to lose loot boxes, but we're going to see we're going to see some changes both in in terms of I think that the companies are going to get better at just like making them seem less obtrusive, but still have them be very addictive and very tantalizing for gamers. Yeah, uh, but I think that there that there's enough like people spooked right now over potential government intervention that they're going to do their best to kind of walk it back and make it look more palatable you know they're, they're going to make it look nicer gentler kinder while it still is going to be somewhat predatory and, and awful yeah <laughs> it's going to be more cosmetic too but you know i think like jim sterling made a pretty good case that cosmetics are, are actually a part of gameplay and that it's it might be better than pay to win but it's still it's still kind of horrible yeah that, that's, I, what's I don't that's what's happening in destiny right now where everything is like demonstrably cosmetic, like literally almost nothing affects gameplay. And yet <laughs> like half the point of that game is collecting cool stuff. So Something when you cool. put all that behind the wall, then it's frustrating. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, and it's, you know, if you go back in time with, you know, the games where you'd unlock new skins just from playing and stuff, it's really frustrating to only be able to get that through either, you know, unrealistic amounts of grinding or, or paying, you know, twice, you know, buying $60 worth of loot boxes and still yeah. only getting, you know, what drives me crazy is all the junk that comes in loot boxes. It's just so much junk. <laughs> like you in Call of Duty or parts or dust or whatever. <laughs> you get a tiny bit of like uh, currency for, for duplicates and stuff, but it's just, it's so obnoxious. I, I, I can't even stand Destiny 2's uh, shader system. Oh, it's very bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's so horrible. I mean, it's been it's terrible just a since cl- launch and it's continues to be terrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it just it's it's a, it's a really poorly thought out system and and very greedy. And in Call of Duty World War 2, they have gr- so many of the things you open in loot boxes are grips. <laughs> grips. You know, All the grips, grips, stocks. Grips. And it's like whoever even looks at that. Like I want to see a cool gun that you know, yeah. I don't want to see a 
pistol grip I'm never going to use. That's the only like, saving grace for Call of Duty is that its loot boxes are full of awful stuff. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, well, although with their, with their big winter event, they came out with a whole bunch of new like jackets and stuff that are really cool looking, oh, yeah. and new hats and helmets. That's what I mean. They've really they've really kind of pushed that. Um, further than ever, I think, in Call of Duty also. Oh, so okay. I think we're going to definitely see some pushback. Speaking of Call of Duty, um, okay, this ties into my next prediction, which is this is really going to be the year that kind of Battle Royale stuff just goes nuts. And oh, yeah. I already saw something like, I think, Call of Duty Online, which is like the Chinese version, is already trying out some sort of like, I think it's 20-person Battle Royale format yeah. for that. So I, I would not su- be surprised to see the next Call of Duty have Battle Royale. I would not be surprised uh, if Red Dead Redemption has something like that. Yeah, yeah. Red Red Dead Royale, I mean, the name is, is right there. Red Dead Royale um, is perfect. <laughs> we'll see other games shoehorn in this mode, which I, I do, we have one being announced. Well, at the time this airs, this will <laughs> be out of embargo, right? The, yeah, the one we were yeah, talking yeah. about earlier. Yeah, it'll be out of here. Yeah, so this is uh, the one uh, Paladins, like the hero shooter that's similar to Overwatch, is now making literally Paladins Battlegrounds. That's literally what they're calling it, which is exactly what it sounds like. And we're going to see a lot of games do that. We might see some, like, just flat-out new, new games, just do it from from scratch, kind of like we did with the hero shooter thing. Uh, But, yeah... I I wonder if uh, Blizzard is going to somehow try and get in on this. Because they always they have you know they have a MOBA they have a hero shooter they have an RTS uh, they have a, a looter in Diablo like I I wonder if they're just gonna somehow try and capitalize on this whether it's, totally. it's one of their existing <laughs> games or just inventing something new like Overwatch Battle Royale I don't know but <laughs> I think we're gonna see a whole lot of that and I th- I feel like very few of them are going to be terribly successful there'll be like two or three and then the rest will be garbage like we've seen with the hero shooters where <laughs> games like lawbreakers and uh what's the one battle battleborn are just yeah. just arrive and are dead instantly stuff like that so that'll be crazy for that but <laughs> yeah i think you're right about the um the whole the whole uh battle royale thing just blowing up i mean if call of duty launches with like regular call of duty maps a war mode thing like like in world war ii and a royale that's gonna be insane and yeah red dead redemption red dead royale that's perfect i I think we're just gonna see more and more of that blizzard always kind of hops on the popular whatever's popular train and that that works sometimes and it doesn't work so well other times so i definitely think we could usually when they're the leader it works out well Mm -hmm. when they're a follower like with heroes of the storm i it's yeah they were way too late yeah that and the Hilariously, they invented the MOBA genre, like with their the mods for Warcraft and all that way back when. It just took them forever to get on the train, but by then it was yeah. it was too late. Um, well, that's a lot of predictions. I think we yeah. just predicted everything accurately. That's and all the things that will happen next year. That's it. Nothing else yeah. will happen. There will be no Nothing other else. controversies or. <laughs> oh, here here's one last one just to round things out. Uh, Ready Player One will reignite the Gamergate debate, and we will all want to kill ourselves. The Gamergate uh, debate. It'll, yeah, yeah. I've already seen like headlines linking the movie to Gamergate. Wait, what? So yeah, no, I don't even want to. I, I don't, don't even know. I, okay, it's the <laughs> I actually, ultimate Gamergate movie or something. I don't know. I recently reread that, and this is getting off topic, but I don't know. Like that gets a lot of hate, and like there's some very 
core parts of that. But overall, I really like kind of the fundamental concept and structure of that book. And I am curious to see how the, how the movie goes because I, I hope Spielberg can do something good with it. And I, I guess I'm less pessimistic about it than other people, but yeah. we'll see. Um, uh, I, I, I thought you were going to say your point is going to be PewDiePie will say something <laughs> offensive. <laughs> no, or now PewDiePie is looking good because Logan Paul um, is such an idiot. Yep, yep. Well, that uh, will be forgotten about in the night. By the time this airs, that will be forgotten about. Yeah, so, yeah that'll be something like, What? What did Logan Paul do? No, nothing. <laughs> Who's Logan Paul? Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, cool. Well, uh, yeah, uh, let us know your predictions for 2018, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. That's it for this episode of World. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drinks. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast one. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Podcast One remembers broadcasting legend. Dick Enberg. A hearty welcome to Steve Kerr. What a thrill to have listened to you all these years. He's basketball Hall of Famer John Calipari. You still have a great voice of all time. Tennis Hall of Famer Billie Jean King. I just hope everyone listening understands what an icon you are. He's my all-American friend Bill Walton. Dick Enberg, I love you. Listen to his amazing stories and his final interviews on Sound of Success, the Dick Enberg Podcast, only on Podcast One or the Podcast One app. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Mini bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following, following the rule of law. It is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.